This week on the Back Table Podcast. What is the lasting impact of what we do and how does it really improve things for the better or bring out the best in each other, bring out the best in who we are, the purpose of what we're doing? So when I'm sitting at the table or not sitting at the table, those are kind of the filters that I pass through because I know I'm going to make mistakes. I know I'm going to make good decisions and I know I'm going to make bad decisions. And, you know, when you go home in your quiet space, you kind of run these through your head and you can easily start beating yourself up. Um, But if you cross check them against your values, I think that that's a real balancing factor. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable ENT podcast, where we discuss all things ear, nose and throat related. And we bring you the best and brightest in our field, and we hope that you can take something from our show to apply to your practice. My name is Shahom Roy. I am the chairman of Pediatric ENT at Children's Hospital of Colorado, a role I've been in for about three months. And today we are going to be discussing a very important topic, which is leadership in otolaryngology. And not just in otolaryngology, but I hope that we can discuss leadership in surgery and leadership in medicine as well. To that end, I have stacked the deck in my favor for today's conversation by bringing in two of what I consider to be the best leaders that I know. Uh, And I'm going to just introduce them uh, quickly and then let them talk a little bit more about themselves. My first guest today is going to be Dr. Dana Thompson. Dr. Thompson is a legend in our field. She is currently the Endowed Professor of Pediatric Otolaryngology and the Chief of Pediatric Otolaryngology at Lurie Children's Hospital. Dana and I go back 20-something years, and it's a pleasure to get to spend some time with her as always. Our second guest today, Dr. Dan Chu, who is the Chief of Pediatric Otolaryngology at Cincinnati Children's Hospital, one of the venerated programs in our our field. Dan's been a great friend and mentor to me over the years, and uh, it is just a privilege to get to spend time with him here today. Also, a quick shout out to Karen Zur, the Chief at uh, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Karen was going to try to make it, but could not make it this morning. We wish her well and uh, hope she's listening in on this at some point. And a special thanks to Gopi Shah, who uh, invited us to do this podcast. I've done this podcast once or twice before. This is my first time actually leading it. So it's helpful to have brought in some of the the brightest minds in the field that I know. So let me start with this. I'm going to ask you to, to introduce yourselves. Tell us a little bit about your career path and your journey to how you got to where you are. And I'll, I'll let Dr. Thompson take the lead on this. Oh, good morning, Shaholm. Dan, good to see you. Good to be here with you also. Uh, just a side note, Dan and I, uh, I did my first cochlear implant skin to skin with Dan. So uh, it's uh, always fun to be part of this with uh, someone who uh, led me through something I didn't want to do. And sometimes that's <laughs> all about leadership. But nonetheless, uh, Shaholm, thank you. This is a, a real honor and a real privilege. Uh, I guess when you ask what's that career pathway to leadership, you know, for me, it's always been, you know, leadership is the pathway to impact change and bringing about solutions. I'm a third generation uh, Black physician, and I came from two community-facing leaders in medicine who really just kind of saw it as a personal responsibility to impact change and influence. And so I think that that's where that core value for me comes. I would say motiv- motivation is impact and change. For me, gosh, boy, I would say it's been a real personal responsibility, I feel, as an underrepresented minority woman in this specialty to 
be a presence and use voice as agency for change and model behavior and, you know, really represent an opportunity for others. So I, I would say that that's kind of been the core essence of how I think I even got on this pathway. I've always been kind of a minority in a majority world ever since high school. And so I've always kind of seen this as a way to influence and impact. So, yeah, I've had leadership roles from high school, college, medical school, and residency. And so that's where I would say my motivation has has come. So that's been that's been the career career pathway for leadership for me. That's fantastic, Dana. Thank you. We're going to explore that a little bit more going forward. Okay, let me turn it over to Dan Chu. Dan, can you tell us a little bit about your career path and what brought you here into a leadership role? You know, I'm I'm a little humbled after listening to Dana, who is we, so we all purpose, tend to be right, <laughs> who is so purpose driven, and plus she's a legend, so that's also kind of intimidating for a guy like me. I am probably more of along the lines of a reluctant leader, tell you the truth, and opportunities presented themselves at different paths along the way. And I'll share with you a very funny, what I think in hindsight is a funny anecdote. So I was at the NIH prior to coming to Cincinnati and one of the faculty at UC had just recently left to go back out to Los Angeles. And so Jack Luckman, who was the chair at the time, called me up and said, Dan, I'd like to build up a scientific program here in Cincinnati. And I'd like you to come out and consult and see what you, what you think we could do and what we should build and what we would need. So I said, that sounds like fun. Came out, hung out with Jack and the crew, took a scope of the landscape for a while. And then after spending a couple of days there, went back to Bethesda, put together a list, crafted it into an email and then sent it back to Jack. But about half an hour later, he calls me, he says, okay. And I said, what's okay, Jack? And he said, We'll, we'll give you this. We can get everything on this list that you just sent me. So why don't you come out and build this program for us? And it was a good bait and switch. <laughs> but at the same time, it was an incredible opportunity, along with an opportunity to build an implant program at Cincinnati and those types of things. So that kind of plopped in my lap. It's interesting listening to Dana. I think the key word that I clued in on for me in terms of the motivation and why is that impact word. I've realized even just recently that the more impactful I'm feeling and I'm having actual effect on what's going on in my little corner of the world, then the greater is my job satisfaction and the greater the energy I derive. But if I'm exerting a ton of energy and effort and it's just not generating anything for whatever reasons and I'm not having an impact then I really tend to disengage and it's a real battle for me to stay, stay in the fight. Yeah. I mean, I think there's, there's some, some real, uh, you know, I think what you're saying really hits home. I think a lot of people in leadership roles like this are here because we want to be able to impact not just programs, but people. And we're trying to impact uh, the careers of others and to, uh, impact the programs that we're leading. You know, I remember one of the things that, that really registered with me during my career, uh, when I was a junior faculty member, I had a sit down with my chair, Tom Balcony at the time. Tom was a pretty legendary otologist in Miami. And I asked him flat out, Dr. Balcony, you know, I, I didn't call him Tom because he was the chair, but I said, Dr. Balcony, 
uh, how did you know when you were ready to be chair? And he said, you'll know it when you care more about the success of your people than you do about your own. And he said, when their success matters to you more than anything you accomplish, that's when you're ready to be chair. And that that has always stuck with me over the years. And I wonder if you guys have kind of felt the same way about it. Yeah, I can jump in there. I, when you had posited this uh, this round table to me, I was had a few minutes to think about it and try and figure out what it was. And one of the things I jotted down was very analogous to what Tom had told you. And I think the best indicator of how you're doing and if you're a good leader is if your people shine. And if they shine better than you, then you're doing a spectacular job. It's a pretty amazing feeling, right? And you know, when I when I look at the two programs that you're running at Lurie and at Cincinnati Children's, I think about how many superstars. I mean, you have the some of the most internationally renowned surgeons between your two programs. And I think that is very telling as to the leadership pathway and what it means. I have to tell you a funny anecdote about both of you um, individually, because I want to segue into another topic of conversation. Um, I want to tell you about the first time I met Dana Thompson. And, uh, you know, Dana, I don't know if you've ever heard my version of the story, but the very first time we met, I was a fellow and I was fellow in Pittsburgh studying under the legendary Charlie Bluestone. And I was attending my first CENTAC meeting. It was in Baltimore and they had uh, some kind of a reception. I think it was on a boat in the inner Harbor. Dana, do you remember this at all? So I'm, I'm there, I'm there with my co-fellow. We don't really know anybody at this meeting, but here is this tall athletic, commanding presence of a woman in five inch heels. And she is walking around and everywhere she goes, there were 10 female surgeons following her. I mean, it was like watching a mother duckling, a mother duck with all these ducklings following her around. Because I remember my friend, Debbie Goble, who we all know, cause she was in Cincinnati. She was one of those people. And she was like, Oh, you don't know who that is. That's Dana Thompson. And you had this innate ability to lead people right off the, the get-go to get the attention of people and for people to want to learn from you. So the first time I met Dana, it was obvious to me what really innate leadership was because she just had this command presence that people wanted to be around her and learn from her. Dana, I don't know if you remember this, but I remember it like it was yesterday. I remember the boat. I remember being on the water. I remember every detail of this. And then Dan Chu, who came into my life a little bit later, but I'd been hearing about for years and years, Dan has the remarkable ability to make a nobody feel like somebody. Cause I'm, I'm kind of a nobody, but Dan has this incredible ability to take a total stranger and make him feel like a friend and immediately welcome you into his fold. I didn't train in Cincinnati. I have a lot of friends in the program, but Dan has made me feel like I'm a, an alumnus of the program, like I'm some sort of a honorary alum of the program. And again, I think there's an innate ability for people to, to make people feel welcome, to feel accepted into their, into their programs. And that is real leadership to me. So I would like to ask the two of you, because my pathway to leadership is a little bit different, right? I uh, joined the faculty at University of Miami, where I had a lot of people I really looked up to. I had a lot of really great leaders uh, that I really looked up to and learned a great deal from. 
Uh, and then I went to University of Texas at Houston, where I was the division chief for a long time. But I'll be honest, I was flying by the seat of my pants. I had not studied leadership. I built the program from scratch and shout out to my partners in, in Texas, Dr. Yuxel, Dr. Jiang, and Dr. Wong, who put up with me learning the hard way by falling flat on my face over and over and over again. And then finally decided if I was going to really learn how to lead, I'd better study it. So I got my master's in management and studied it formally and learned how to lead people and learned what it was to make organizational change. So I would like to hear from the two of you, is leadership innate? Is it something you're just born with, have this quality? Is it something that's learned and studied? How do you really get to be good at it? And can you learn to be good at it if you're not inherently good at it? You know, I would say I'm fairly uncertain whether it's innate. I think you have to be ready, willing, and able, and then also have the courage to do so and recognize kind of these opportunities when they present themselves. You know, Dan, I, I liked hearing your story of the reluctant leader and someone tapped into you for your expertise, uh, because that's that's part of that pathway for many of us. Someone else sees something that we may not see in ourselves as kind of a need skill or a trait. And it's some self-awareness and recognizing that when it happens or when it does happen, you know, really learning from it. Yeah, you know, I, I don't think it's inherited. I think we have role models, family of origin, people who are important to us. Uh, so we learn the behavior and the modeling over time. But I really think it's we have to be willing and able. You know, observation of others, I think, is a really important part of this, how they manage situations. You know, we're all familiar with Robin Cotton. I would say I probably learned just as much about leadership as I did pediatric laryngology, if not more about leadership by just watching him that two years that I was there. You know, he had this incredible ability to motivate others, see their skills and bring that about. I don't know, Shaholm, I reflect back onto your story that you described. You know, some of it is we don't often see ourselves as others see us. You know, and for me, it took a long time to kind of overcome that do I belong, some of this imposter syndrome, whatnot, and to start to see who I am and my lived experience as a unique contribution to bringing others along in development. So, you know, when you talk about learning how to be a leader, it's learning from your lived experiences and observing and watching others uh, as part of this journey you know, we all at some point when you're involved in leadership do take on some coursework or career development. You know, I've certainly had a coach. I've certainly done some of the career and leadership development programs at the respective organizations that I have worked. It's important to even redo that if you move from one organization to another because the cultures are different. Um, and it's important really to understand how your values and your leadership fall into the core of the culture in which you're your leading, I think, is another kind of lesson in leadership. And then formally, much like you, uh, you did your MMM. Um, later in life, I, I chose to do an MBA. And, and it wasn't, I didn't really feel to do um, in the terms of, did I need it to continue as a leader? It was more to gain a language and a perspective and learn, shall we say, leadership from a business perspective which creates a different language for you as a leader, uh, particularly in this day and age of healthcare and the economics behind many of the decisions that get made in our respective organizations. So 
I don't know, I could ramble on on, on this topic, but that's just, uh, that's kind of my start on this. Um, I do a lot of reading. I do a lot of HBR reading. It's funny, Bill I read George. the same thing. Yeah, Bill George is probably one of my favorite authors. I don't know if you're familiar with his work. Oh, yeah. And his son has had an exurgent out at UCSF. I didn't know uh, that. Yeah, so there's some, you know, commonalities in otolaryngology. Uh, the key thing about what he does is in his work, he really forces you to hone in and ask yourself some really tough questions about what motivates you, what is your true north, and then describes a lot of experiences where people feel like, you know, they may not have been successful or they failed and how it actually pushed and helped people grow as leaders. Um, so I, I honestly think that his work has been probably one of the most valuable core bodies in terms of literature on development and leadership that I think is out there. Let me play off of Dana because she mentioned Robin Cotton and Robin had this charismatic ability. There's just for such a physically diminutive guy, he had such a overwhelming presence. And in contrast to her humility and kind of your story, Shahom, Dana's got that same gravity where people just gravitate towards her. It's a invisible force that draws people to her. I think it stems from one, fundamentally, it's not about Dana. So it's always going to be about somebody else. There's a positivity, right? And no matter what you look at, every, every challenge is an opportunity. And then an energy. I think you have to have those three things. It's got to be, the why has to be for a good reason other than yourself. You have to have a positive outlook that encourages and inspires people. And then you have to somehow convey that energy onto other people so they feel empowered actually pursue that why and feel like I can actually do that. It's a very ephemeral part of leadership and you can certainly be born with it like Robin, uh, like Dana. I'm slowly getting comfortable with the concept that I can do that. I'll share with you guys that during just recently, uh, and we, we probably all been living through this right now, post COVID, there has been a rebound in our business and activity that is just swamping people. And it was really starting to fry my group. Thankfully, I have some good sensors out there. Uh, my administrative assistant being one of the key linchpins in how Cincinnati's program works. And Chrissy pulled me aside and said, Dan, I've just heard from just about everybody on your faculty. And what they're asking for is some time with you. They just need to spend time with you, either one-on-one, -on -one, or in a group together away from stuff. And I didn't quite get it, but it's the fact that I don't know if it's a safe place, it's an energizing place for them, it's refocusing for them. It re-enables them to say, you know, let's just put our heads down, we can do this. I never thought of myself as kind of an inspirational leader because I am such a introverted, quiet kind of personality. And I think my miss was that you don't have to be larger than life and loud and fill an entire room to be inspirational to people. For me, it drills down much more to individual interactions and relations with people that then gives them that energy and that desire and that refocus to go ahead. 
Does that make sense to you guys? Oh, absolutely. And um, Dan, in the 25 years I've, I've known you, just kind of, I'd like to to uh, piggyback on to, to a few things that you mentioned here. Um, firstly, you mentioned your assistant as being kind of the eyes and the ears and the tentacles. And it, I think that is such an important part of leadership um, is having the relationship with people that are going to help you when you might have your blinders on or they're going to have that courage to speak up and, you know, say, you know, your people need time with you or, you know, what you said may not have come out the way that you intended. I think that's just a really important part of building your team and and having and having those plants around you because that's really what helps feed this and grow this, um, you know, as, as a total team. So I really appreciated hearing... Um, hearing you say that, Dan. The other thing I'd like to piggyback on is uh, Dan described um, how I show up as a leader. Uh, It took me a while to understand and step into that. Similar to how Dan is saying he shows up as a leader. I remember watching Dan when I was on the faculty in Cincinnati. And Dan, you are correct. You are quiet. But when you do speak up, everyone knows that you have something really important to say and that you've been thoughtful about it, and that um, it is a moment of pause for the entire group. That's one of the things that I really remember about about your leadership style. And, and that's something that I have learned to emulate and put into my own leadership style, particularly in spaces where um, I may be at the table or invited to the table, and I might be uncertain while I, why I'm there. Or it may be in a space that is not necessarily, I would say, one of my areas of my own perceived strengths. Just sit back and listen, process the information, and then kind of let it sit. And then you know when the right time to speak up is. So, Dan, I think you actually modeled that best for me. Hmm. Thanks. You know, I, I just have to interject here that I can't help but chuckle at two of the most respected people in our fields sitting here talking about having imposter complexes. I mean, imagine for everybody listening, especially for some of the junior more folks in otolaryngology who are listening, maybe you're in training, maybe you're junior faculty, every one of you that I have interacted with has mentioned feeling the imposter complex. I live it every single day. I mean, I there isn't a day that goes by that I don't think today's the day that my badge stops working at Children's Colorado. And uh, every day when I show up to work, I flash my badge into the reader and I there's just a momentary pause where I'm looking at it going, is it going to turn green or is it going to stay red? Because that's going to tell me whether or not I'm still employed here. And, you know, I I hear from a lot of junior faculty members how they go through this imposter complex and that kind of stuff. It doesn't end, folks. I mean, it, it even for some of the people that are best respected in our field, that imposter complex is real. And I think it's one of the things that drives us to continually be better to make sure that we, if we're experiencing imposter complex, it's unfounded because we continue to drive ourselves towards being better. And then I'm going to just tack on to something that both of you mentioned about Dr. Cotton. Again, I didn't train in Cincinnati and I didn't have an actual connection to Cincinnati. But when I accepted this new leadership role and decided to move, Robin Cotton out of the clear blue texted me. And I didn't even know he knew who I was, to be honest, uh, let alone the fact that he didn't say, hi, it's Dr. Cotton. He just sent me a text message telling me how proud he was of, which was completely random. 
out of the blue. And first I had to verify who the phone number was. So I actually called one of my friends in Cincinnati. I said, do you recognize this phone number? And they said, yeah, it's Robin Cotton. I said, he just texted me to congratulate me and tell me he was proud of me. And I, I took away a really important lesson about that, which is that no matter how important you are in this field, how people look at you, you're never too important to make others feel important. And that is something that I have tried to exemplify. And I have learned from watching both of you as well, in that you have always tried to prioritize making others feel important in their careers. And I, I think that the ability to do that is what separates real leadership. You know, that, that has been a huge learning lesson for me over the years. And that anecdote about Robin, though, is partly, well, 90% a reflection of who Robin is. Uh, but then, too, it also reflects a little bit about pediatric otolaryngology and probably even otolaryngology. It's a small enough field, right, that yeah. we really aren't complete strangers. And I love the intimacy of that in that you can reach out to people. And even if you don't know them up close and personal, we're still on professionally enough familiar terms that we can reach out like that and it doesn't seem strange. Yeah, that's absolute truth. I mean, I, I tell all my trainees, like my medical students, when they're applying for residency and my residents when they're applying for fellowship, said, you know, you're used to this sort of very formalized process of interviews and applications. The reality is, especially when you start to get into the fellowship subspecialty arena, a lot of what we do is a simple text message between friends saying, hey, one of my people is coming to interview with you. I really like this person and I think you ought to take a really careful look at them. Or if you're looking for somebody for a job, you know, it's like, it's not just the formalized application. It's as straightforward as saying, I'm going to email Dana and let her know I've got this candidate who I think she ought to consider hiring. Um, the intimacy that we share as a, a subgroup and, you know, pediatric otolaryngology, certainly with four or 500 of us is really tight knit, but even otolaryngology as a whole is a very tight knit specialty. I mean, we all either know each other or have one degree of separation from Mm -hmm. And I hope we never lose that sense. I think it's one of the greatest things about our field. Let me cir circle back to a little bit, and I'd be curious to get Dana's input on this, you know, with the imposter thing that you mentioned, phenomena, for me, has too much of a negative connotation these days. I think that's an early phase thing when you're first coming out and starting to rise through the ranks of different leadership levels. But on the positive end of things, for me, it's a humility self-check thing that I don't always assume that I am totally competent and appropriate to be at this particular table. And then where that comes into play for me these days, particularly in higher levels of hospital leadership, I found that my quiet approach and taking things in and processing it and only giving out, you know, well-digested thoughts sometimes makes me less appear less engaged in some of these big meetings. Uh, and I've forced myself to figure out, let me just process out loud with you guys and have more dialogue. If you were to look at the percentage distribution very mechanically in a meeting, what, what do you do, Dana? How do you, how do you and Shaho manage that piece? I, I want to hear Dana's perspective on this because I will tell you that much of what I've done in my career are things that I've observed Dana doing. And so I like to learn as much as I can from her. So I'm going to let her take this one first. Oh, boy. Thanks, Joel. <laughs> no, but no, Dan, it's a, it's a, it's a provocative question. Um, 
One thing about leadership is there are no right or wrong decisions or right or wrong comments necessarily. They are a perspective. That is part of why you are there is to provide a perspective. And sometimes those perspectives are in alignment. Sometimes those perspectives are at, uh, at, you know, are a cogent conversation. And sometimes those perspectives are completely a different perspective than what may be at the table. I think for me, the thing that has helped me through this is having a real clear sense of what my values are. And they fall into five words. Um, and I process and filter almost everything through that. So it's A, excellence, you know, excellence in what's best for the person involved, what's best for the patient, what's best for the organization, um, just high level excellence. Um, the second um, is inclusion. You know, I think it's just so important to understand that um, inclusion is beyond, you know, these concepts of 2020 of diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's inclusion of thought. Uh, it's respecting diverse and divergent opinions because at the end of the day, that's how um, we probably better solve solutions. So trying to be patient and understand and listen to diverse perspectives. Um, so that's, that's, a, that's a key. Um, another value for me is innovation. You know, how can we do this differently? Should we be doing it differently or should we not be doing it differently? So that innovation, short of change management is kind of one of my other core values that I, that I crosswalk things against. The last or the next one is resilience. What kind of resilience is this going to take to maintain the status quo, to move something forward? Uh, what kind of impact is it going to, to me as a leader, what kind of impact is it going to have to the resilience of the people who are impacted or influenced by these conversations. And then the, the, the most important value for me, and it takes us back to the beginning of the conversation, is impact. What is the lasting impact of what we do and how does it really improve things for the better or bring out the best in each other, bring out the best in who we are, the purpose of what we're, we're doing. So when I'm sitting at the the table or not sitting at the table, those are kind of the filters that I pass through because I know I'm going to make mistakes. Uh, I know I'm going to make good decisions and I know I'm going to make bad decisions. And, you know, when you go home in your quiet space, you kind of run these through your head and you can easily start beating yourself up. Um, but if you cross check them against your values, I think that that's a real, that's a real balancing factor. Dana, the fact that you have not written that principle, those five values and filters that you run things through into a paper is a disservice to medicine. Okay. You need to write that down. You need to formulate that into a three page paper and we need to publish it because I think that that kind of insight and giving people a pathway for how they make decisions is critical. I mean, I I'm embarrassed to even follow up that comment to tell you that I, you know, I use a similar pathway, but mine is so much more simplistic which is to almost use a near Buddhist philosophy on this, which is, first of all, is it necessary? Is it kind? Is it the right thing to do? And if it meets those criteria, then I'm willing to move forward and speak up about it. And, you know, for me, that sort of matches with my core philosophy, which is uh, collegiality coupled with transparency. 
And if it's collegial and it's transparent, then it meets my kind of essential check marks. Those are hard stops. If it's not collegial and it's not transparent, I'm not willing to try it. So I guess we all in many ways run our way, our, our decisions through filters, but you got to write those down. I mean, that is fantastic. I think, I think medicine deserves to see your perspective on this. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you, Shalom. You know, it's, uh, I think it's important that when you're leading others, they know what your values are too, because then it helps them understand the perspective and what some of your conversation points or decisions you're made from. Um, I think the other part of this for me is when I've looked at other career opportunities, it's really important for me to filter that opportunity through my values because I think it's important to help understand, A, can you show up and be an authentic leader in this space? B, is it the right substrate and environment? And will, you know, will it enhance you in being the best for others? And so that's an that's another kind of key area I've kind of I've used that those five pillars of, of values. And and actually when I interviewed for other positions, you know, you have that opening statement that they want to kind of hear, you know, why this job or why are you looking at this? Um I speak to my my values in the very, very beginning of any conversation. Yeah, I, I mean that that just seems really wise. I guess I'll I'll tag in. Uh I didn't never thought of it as filters, Dana, which I think is a really really good construct. Uh and maybe we do this subconsciously all the time. There's a few axioms and then one kind of punny thing I'll share with you, but specifically within the hospital and the medical setting, I will prioritize as I have, my job is to take care of the patients that we serve, number one. And then number two is take care of the people that take care of those patients. And then third in there is that piece about, it can't be about me. And then these days, I, I suspect you guys will be able to to resonate with this as well. But there's so many resource allocation and prioritization exercises going on in our day-to-day lives and our operations of our divisions, our hospital. And it seems like people are chasing a lot of the wrong things when we get at some of these upper level leadership decisions. But the pithy thing is something that I got from my grandfather who said, Dan, you can't chase money. Money has to chase you. And it's remarkably true. And if you put that in front of a lot of hospital executive leadership decisions, you, you question like, all right, why did you do this? <laughs> but the corollary to that is how do you get money to chase you is a very key corollary. And on that one, it becomes, you have to provide great value, right? And then with a nod towards all the competitive niches out there, you also have to do it better than everybody else or at least try to do it better than everybody else. And I think our patients will even recognize, they give us the grace that as long as they see that you're really trying hard to do better, even if it's not a perfect outcome, it's still great for them and they're very appreciative. So mixing all those things together, it's this weird melange in my head in terms of how do I process stuff? Uh, and maybe I should codify that a little bit better so I, my brain can work through it quicker. I mean, that, that is really, that's so interesting because you're right. I think, you know, when I look at the success of your programs, I think a lot of it is because you provide excellent quality care. You provide a value 
to people that drives them towards you. And when you're providing that kind of value, the money will chase you. I can only imagine the look on the board's face or the C-suite's face the first time you said that phrase out loud. I, I'm just in my head picturing it because the word pariah comes to mind. And <laughs> I can only imagine what you went through. Uh, <laughs> Not that I, I think people had to chew on it for a while, tell you the truth. So they didn't, uh, I didn't get any of those immediate backlashes. Yeah, I can imagine. So listen, I, you know, I need to ask some advice from both of you. So I, I took on, you know, from a smaller leadership role at my last job to a much bigger leadership role. We've got a, a real big, robust department at Children's Colorado. I've been in this role for three or four months. I've had some missteps, of course. I think I've had some successes as well. What do you tell somebody who's in a new leadership role? What, what do I need to be doing? How should I be thinking about this? And how would others listening in? What do they need to do when they're in a new leadership role to make sure that they're set up for success? Listen, if it's too late for me, just say so. Just <laughs> late, the look on your face, the, sure. the look on your face suggests um, to me that maybe you're like, oh God, he's beyond saving. So <laughs> first of all, you know, those concepts of what Dan said earlier, it's, it's taking care of the patients and taking care of the people who take care of the patients as, as the priority in building the team. Um, it's for the way I've looked at this is what is the gap assessment? What is the gap assessment and delivery through others? You know, it's knowing your strengths and your gaps and how to fill them. You know, do you fill them with others on your team that have skills that you don't? Um, do you fill it with others on your team where you recognize potential and give them the pathway to grow into that? I think one of my favorite stories of bringing others along is, you you know, Jennifer Laban. Of course. Yeah. So Jennifer was one of our residents here at Northwestern. Skilled, analytical, bright. We encouraged her to go do fellowship somewhere else. She came back. Um, and just knowing what her skills are and knowing that we had a gap in um, quality and process improvement in our team, it's like, okay, Jennifer, how can we develop these skills in you, give you the tools, align some opportunities and resources, plant and let you go and grow? I mean, she, in a short period of time, when I know that my boss would go to her rather than coming to me, then I knew we succeeded. When people in the organization started going to her and tapping into her strengths not just what she demonstrated in olaryngology, but the impact in the entire organization. You know, I think that that's one of the fun parts of this job. Uh, so in your role, I'm going to encourage you to really look um, at the potential in your team. Find out where you can find the resources, how they're aligned with the gaps in your own team and the institutional needs for the patients as a, as a real, as a real true opportunity of growing and developing and, and creating a network to, um, to surround yourself by. So that would be one of the pieces of advice that I would bring in. You know, it's delivery through others. It brings out the best in others and developing others. And as Dan was saying, that's really, and you were saying earlier, that's really the fun part of the job, you know, because the conversation about where are the resources coming from, where's the money, Where's the volume? Where are the budget? You know, those are all things that um, we're responsible for as leaders, and they're going to be there. It's it's 
how do the steps and bricks of developing others fill those gaps and you know keep the team together i think the other thing is in this role and show i know you do this well is um transparency and knowing that vulnerability is actually a strength you know when when i've had members of our faculty face some you know face things that we all are going to face as professionals and as humans you know i've i've shared my own stories about physician burnout and tried to do what i could to be a good active listener and coach based on own lived experiences it's not like here's my lived experience and what i did it's more of i've experienced that it's okay to say that this is what you're going through and you're going to get on the other side of this it's going to feel different when you're on the other side of this and just showing these these vulnerabilities of these lived experiences that we all have, I think, is another really important part of being a leader to to your to your team. So it's interesting to hear you say this because I did not understand this twelve years ago when I was at UT Houston. I uh, used to think that you know to be a good strong leader, you had to not show weakness, you had to be willing to step up and uh, you know kind of take the bullets for your team and always be the resilient one. And uh, then I did my first 360 evaluation, and I did it with my professional coach, a guy named John Reed, who I'm still very close to. And as part of my professional, uh, my, my first 360, he said, you know, part of the problem is the medical assistants are a little bit afraid of you because you're big and you have this deep voice and you seem completely unflappable. You seem like, you know, you, you can't be vulnerable to anything. He said, you need to be willing to show some vulnerability, show them when you're having a bad day, tell them when you're struggling with a decision. It never dawned on me that that would be considered a good thing. And it forced me to seriously reassess how I present myself in front of a team. And it's it's so interesting because just on Friday, I, I typically about once a month send out a Friday chairs message email to my department. So all the faculty, advanced practitioners and, and nurses and what have you. And one of the things I mentioned was an article that was in the New York Times that you may have seen this week about physician burnout and that it's at an all-time high and 63% of physicians or something have reported feeling uh, some sense of professional burnout. And in the bottom of my email, I said, you know, I've been through this too. I understand what it is to be depressed. I understand what it is to feel burned out at your job. You're not in this alone. I'm always open to talk about it anytime. And that's not something I would have ever considered saying 12 years I just would not have been willing to share that. Uh, and so I think that is a, a tremendous thing to learn. Um, so it's really nice to hear you say that because it makes me feel like maybe I am doing something right. You do a lot of things right. You know, and knowing your, your department. So a few things. I would go at a very granular level. You're still in a honeymoon period. I would leverage that to the max. You Worst honeymoon old- ever. Golden opportunity to go in and ask these really painfully naive questions. Like, it is. Why, why do we do this? This seems really stupid. It's like you literally are showing up to work with me every day because I start every question with, look, I realize this is going to sound naive because I'm new here, but why are we doing this this way? This is silly. It's yeah. so, oh, they won't so let you do that here. forever. They'll yeah. say, home. you've been here long enough, but man, take advantage of it and force some of those really uncomfortable fundamental questions and challenges that you have to change. Then you can go really, I I think of our jobs as one of the easiest things to sell. We have such a great mission. It is so compelling. 
so easy to assimilate into your soul that motivating people behind that and getting them aligned is a no-brainer. And it actually plays out. You have a fairly young faculty, if you, you think about your demographic overall. And what I admire about them a lot is compared to when I was in my 30s and 40s, I did not have this overbearing, burning desire in my soul that I had to make the world a little bit better, right? I was just trying to figure out how to clean earwax out of combative little kids, right? So they have a much better global perspective of the world and a much more altruistic thing. And it's important. I think you'll do this really well as you tap into that routinely. Sometimes it's really pithy, you know, and we just put in another set of tubes and say, all right, there's another set of ears saved on this kid. But just the other week, we had one of our typical crazy days in Cincinnati and probably the fourth MLMB in the morning was this kid who was in for his decan bronc, right? And doing great, walks out of there, rolls out of there rather without need for a trach anymore. So I pulled over one of my faculty and said, you just changed that kid's life. Do you realize that? How much different is that kid's life? Because he doesn't have to worry about a trach anymore. You just opened up so many more pathways and so many more normal kid things for them to do for the rest of their lives. You know, and it gets so mechanical for us, right? Yeah. And it would be so easy to gloss over that. To lose sight of it, right? Right. But that. That's part of our jobs is to refocus them on the why. And again, it circles all the way back to that impact thing. Then they feel like, wow, I just impacted a four-year-old's life for the next 90 years. How yeah. cool is that? Yeah. And you know, you're an implant surgeon, right? So you probably don't realize that you're living the same experience. You literally take a deaf child and, and allow them the opportunity to live in a hearing world. And I hope you never lose sight of that. I hope that, you know, despite the fact that for you doing an implant, you don't lose any sleep the night before. I still get a little stressed out because I don't do nearly the volume of implants that you do. But, you know, for you, you don't think twice about it. You pop in an implant, you sew it up and you're like, yeah, the implant went great. See ya. But you have literally changed this family's world forever in a positive manner. And actually, you know, it's so interesting because one of your faculty members, Mike Rutter, who we all know well, is the person who often brings this back to me on a regular basis, when I feel like I'm losing some of my joy or some of my drive, Mike often reminds me, he said, you know, what we do is very, very difficult. And sometimes we, we lose sight of that, but just remember that we really tried to help more people than we didn't. And if we helped more people than we didn't, then every single day was worth it. And I, I give Mike a ton of credit for having that sort of high level view of what we do because we do some really difficult things and we have to make some hard decisions and it's important not to lose sight of the impact that this has. And, you know, you're right. I think for, for so many of our junior faculty, meaning purpose is, is their driving force, maybe more than it was for us when we were early on in our careers. You think that too, Dana? Hey, do you see that? I do. It's, it's definitely a different mindset different generational shift and you know the world and society has evolved you know which I, it brings brings up another really important part about leading teams you know we spoke about diversity of opinion and perspective it's really diversity of where we are in our stages of life and learning and growing from from that hmm. well before we run out of time 
I do have one additional question that I'd like to, to sort of end with. Anybody who is interested in developing a leadership role, I, I personally have seen sort of two different schools of, of uh, development for people's careers. One is people who want to be leaders because they want what it does for them. They want the title. They want the excitement. I think we know people like that in surgery and medicine, uh, in, in just daily life. Then there are the types of people that we've been talking about today whose leadership role is as a servant leader, where they're really trying to uh, empower others and to raise others' careers. What would you advise somebody, say, in training or early in their career who says, I believe that I can be a really impactful leader. How do I develop that skill? What would you advise somebody interested in becoming a leader? Ooh, I've got, I've got Dan Chu thinking, and that's a good sign. That means mm. we got something good going here. Your, your question, the way you posited it, made me think of a couple of things. There are some phases of life, just like Dana was saying, that in the beginning, I think you need to be a little more self-centered or egocentric. It's part of the natural development. And as long yeah. as the goals for somebody like that are aligned properly and they're good goals, right, it allows them to engage and mature along that pathway effectively. As you get older and you've accomplished more, as you get more comfortable in your own shoes and you've listed those accolades onto your shelf, then I think you get that bandwidth to be able to think more broadly about others. Right? I think that's a natural developmental trajectory for a lot of people. There are definitely those astounding individuals who right out of the womb are just programmed to care and more about others than themselves. I don't think that's uniform and I don't think that's a bad thing. I think early on, it's like mentoring those kind of people is channeling those ambitions and aligning them with good, ali good aligned goals for the greater good. So that even if they're doing it for themselves in the beginning, which is okay, you still, it's again, it's good deployment of your people and it's good development for that person. So I don't think that's an issue. And then just plugging them in with graded responsibilities and carefully, carefully managing those pieces, I think is great. It pushes that maturational curve because as you start to see that it's not just about me, it's not just about my division. It's actually about the whole department. Now it's actually across the entire campus. You can't help, but begin to appreciate that. Oh, it's more than about me. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, very much so. Dana, what do you think? I think Dan, in his thoughtful pauses, articulated that um, beautifully. And um, to to add to that, early in one's career or development, I should say, is clearly learning what you like to do and you're good at and what you don't like to do is an important part of this this journey. Another important part of the journey is um, watching how your mentors mentor you and coach you and your allies, because that is such a part of the skill and development moving forward. As Dan was saying on helping people hone in on that, you know, I, I can honestly say that um, I had some pretty impactful mentors and leaders and I'm going to say this as a woman and as a woman of color, many of us think that we need to be mentored and sponsored by people who look like us. If I had waited for that, I would never have been mentored or sponsored. 
So it's being open to who you can be mentored and sponsored by is another important thing. And let's fast forward 30 years. As our workforce becomes so much more diverse, it's important to recognize we have something to learn from everybody and just kind of letting go of our biases as to who will or who will not mentor, who will help us grow. It's identifying, um, I think, some of those leadership skills and attributes of others that you want to learn, grow, and emulate and develop those relationships is another part of this this journey from from the self and me to the greater to the greater we. We are all a mosaic of all of the people who influence us. And uh, that mosaic not only includes the people that uh, are your leaders and teachers, but it becomes your peers. It becomes your residents. It becomes your fellows. Everybody will teach you to be a better person and a better leader if you are open to seeing that. So much truth in that, that it's not just about the generations before us, but it's also about the people we're surrounded by every day. You know, big shout out to some of my closest crew, including the both of you and uh, the people that I speak to uh, when I have challenges in my uh, operational life and in my my uh, professional life and personal life. But one of the themes that I take away from today is that in many ways, leadership is a love letter to the people who came before us. And it's our way of thanking them for investing in us is for us to invest in others and to invest in our programs and our people the way that they invested in their programs and the way they invested in us. And none of us would be here if we hadn't had that kind of mentorship and guidance and counsel and investment of their time and their energy into us. And we turn around and we pay that to the next, uh, to the next group as well. So on that note, as signing off a big love letter to the people who came before us and the people who continue to inspire us every day, I would like to thank my guests from the bottom of my heart for joining us on the Backtable ENT podcast today. I hope everybody who's listened has enjoyed learning from our guest today. Dr. Dana Thompson, chief at Lurie Children's Hospital. Dr. Dan Chu, chief at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. You can find us on SoundCloud, on Spotify, on iTunes, on Apple, and on Ghana. And also, please follow the Backtable ENT podcast on Instagram and Twitter at Backtable ENT. I believe it's actually at underscore Backtable ENT. We love feedback, so please reach out to us for topics, ideas, speakers, or if you ever want to come on the show, we'd love to have. So once again, Dr. Thompson, Dr. Chu, thanks so much for joining us today on Backtable ENT. Have a great day. That was a blast. Thanks. Sean, that was awesome. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan. Our audio team lead is Karen Yen, with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhorter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz, with support from Taylor's version Hess. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.